Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here and you know this is part of the message of project cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money like i said having the vision is great but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level i think for all those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here you know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West, because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is, Project Kashmir's listener. I have today on our podcast Kevin Rabinovich, who I've met a couple of times in my life. He wasn't, the last time we met, he was here in Krakow in Poland, but he's, uh, he's a TEDx organizer for TEDx Youth at Columbia. At least that's, that's the information I've got. And, uh, and he, was, uh, he, he was someone who, who, who joined a meeting and I thought was, immediately thought was uh, interesting enough to be worthy of, of sharing with 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 you, our listeners. So, um, so Kevin, rather than me sort of mangle the notes I've got here in introducing yourself, just imagine that you just bumped into someone in a, some kind of social or business networking environment who you didn't know who didn't know who you were at all, and you're just trying to introduce yourself in that sort of classic elevator short introduction pitch. Sure. So I'm a student interested in the intersections of ideas, youth, technology, design, and education. Right now, for me, that means um, tackling issues in K-12 education, meaning primary and secondary education, for those of you who aren't familiar with the U.S. education system. And specifically within that challenge, looking at uh, how can we get students to talk about issues in constructive and productive ways using dialogue, and that is is sort of something that uh, I've tried to integrate into our TEDx um, organization in TEDx Youth at Columbia, which is based in Columbia, South Carolina, in the states. That, that's obviously a very TEDx orientated reply in terms of the broad thing. What what do you actually study? What what are you majoring in in, in your university? Yeah, I'm studying architecture um, with minors in digital production and philosophy. Um, and while that might seem pretty um, you know varied and and maybe even um, strange, uh, I, would, I would say that the convergence of those things is being able to think about a broad variety of issues, um, primarily using uh, things like design thinking and um, approaching problems through different lenses, which is something that I've um, been able to embrace through my TEDx experience. Okay, ex- excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly come back to design thinking because that's a, a concept which is both very interesting and not everyone knows about. But um, although we've had some uh, TEDx speakers and licensors on the on the podcast in the past, that doesn't mean that everyone listening will know what that is. So, and, and despite TED and TEDx being a phenomenally popular 
popular uh, website and movement globally, not everyone knows about it. So, so if you've done that introduction and someone says, so, so what's TEDx? Um, what do you say? Yeah, so typically I ask them, have you ever seen a TED Talk? Um, if they say no, I tell them TED Talks for short, powerful talks that convey an idea in 18 minutes or less. Um, and they're talks given by speaker who a speaker who has expert insight into that idea. Uh, then after I've, after I've introduced them to that, I'll tell them about TEDx events. And I'll say that TEDx events are spelled T-E-D-X. And the X in that stands for an independently organized TED event, meaning that um, a TEDx conference brings that same high quality TED Talks experience to a local and affordable level. Um, for my event specifically, TEDx Youth at Columbia, um, we have that name because we are based in Columbia, South Carolina, um, and we're a youth event, meaning we target specifically high school students ages 14 to 18 um, within Columbia and South Carolina. Okay, I'm going to come on to the, one of the things that really struck me when, when you, um, you, you passed by our, I think it was our team meeting or possibly, some, it, was some, it may have been a post-event meeting, I have a strong feeling it was a post-event meeting in, in, in my house, was you described in very sort of well-structured way you run your team, but um, I'm very interested in and a lot of our audience are entrepreneurs or people who want to start organizations and businesses. So the way organizations work is very interesting. So we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But if we could go back to your motivation, when did you first have the idea of being a, doing a TEDx yourself? And before that, when did you first come across TED Talks and the TEDx concept? Yeah, so I first came across TED Talks. Um, I first came across TED Talks in my dad's car on the way to school when he would give me his iPod and let me watch them maybe in the fourth or fifth grade. I, I have this strong memory of, of pulling up to the carpool line and kind of sitting there and watching a couple of TED Talks while I was in line. Um, and sort of, sorry to interrupt. What's, not everyone knows the American grade system. What sort of age oh, are you sorry. when you're doing fourth or fifth? Yeah, so grades four and five would be about ages ten or eleven. Um, and so around that time, I was watching TED talks on a daily basis. And then at around age fourteen or fifteen or so, uh, I heard about TEDx Columbia, which was our standard adult event, I guess. Um, uh, which was happening in Colombia, um, and I wanted to attend, so I wrote to them. I um, I applied for, a, uh, or sorry, I have, uh, yeah, I applied to attend. Um, unfortunately, my application was denied because I was under eighteen. But I, I asked them what could I what could I do instead? What are the alternatives? And they said that well, there's a TEDx youth license that you could apply for from TED. Um, so I again wrote to TED and then applied for a license, um, and somehow I got it. Um, and that sort of that accident, I guess, um, kickstarted kickstarted my TEDx journey um, in about the ninth grade. Um, so that that accident kicked it all off. Basically, you'd heard you'd heard some TED talks. You thought this is cool. You heard there's a local TEDx. You thought that sounds great. I want to go to it. And then they said someone said no, and that was but but the, but they said no in a sort of constructive way. You can't do this, but why, yeah. why not that? Okay, and um, but and when you when you were you aware of what a major <laughs> a major project that you, you were taking on when because uh, what you were t at twelve or thirteen years old at that stage I guess uh, yeah fourteen or fifteen yeah. fourteen or fifteen so were you aware of what a big big type of thing you would be taking <laughs> no not at all right? 
No, absolutely not. No, I, I had, I had no idea. I'd never done anything like it in my life. My parents didn't have any sort of background in, in event planning or anything like that. So, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I applied for the license, um, and, and got it around, uh, October in, or November and maybe tried to hold the first event in like a month or two. Um, <laughs> and, and looking back on it, it just seems so ridiculous, but I thought I could pull it together. Um, so I grabbed like 10 of my closest friends, um, from high school. Um, again, this is about ninth grade, which means I was about 14 or 15. Um, and, and said, Hey, will you guys help me with this? And for some reason they said yes. Um, so they all sort of helped pitch in and, and, and we realized, uh, about, maybe three or four weeks in that, yeah, this was not going to happen in a month. Um, and we pushed it off to, I think, March or April of that year. Um, and I, I would say one of the biggest challenges that that we had was um, just like pure lack of experience, like being 14 or 15 and having to like pick speakers for an event, design marketing, collateral, like work out who's going to be where at what time how is the event going to be produced how are we going to record everything like all those challenges were things that i had absolutely no experience in um, obviously I, I don't represent ted although you know although will davis the head of the head of licensing came over to a workshop we did in in september and i sort of feel i you know i haven't got to know the the, the ted team well but i certainly know them that the this is sort of this sort of cultural um, willingness to support people who are trying to do things, which, which, which is, I mean, it's an extraordinary support organization. Of, of, I haven't seen anything like it. There are a lot of organizations which try to try to project around the world whatever they do, but the, the, in the TEDx team, it's, it's their purpose. They don't have an, they don't have another purpose, and you know, they're right. so, so that there is this amazing resource thing. But you know, I, I quite often just recently some people from a a, a, a regional uh, hub to the south of to the south of Krakow in Poland, where I'm based, um, said, "Hey, we'd like to do TEDx Zakopane," and uh, get, and I said, "Sure, so have some write to me." And they, the person wrote to me, and I, I sent them a link to the the relevant part of the TED webpage about apply for a TEDx. And I say, "You'll you'll you'll want to spend a few hours reading through this," and and I I think I I'm not sure I said, but I. I thought, and if you're not ready to spend a few hours reading through the through the license application process, there's no way you should be even considering doing it because you'll think, "Wow, it's yeah. it's going to take all evening to 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 figure out how to apply for a license." He said, "Well, one evening is not a lot compared to what's coming if you, have to do a, you, know, you know, if you if you're not ready to put in an evening, then you're certainly not ready to do an event." And you know, people say, "Oh, the form's so complicated. Can't you help me?" And you say, "Well, not really. Well, yes, I can give you advice, but it's." It, this is a complicated thing to to put on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you you took this on, and by the time I, how many had you done by the time we met? Uh, around, I, I guess it was it was less than a year ago. I swear, I, I guess it was about six months ago we met. Would that be about right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um. So we've had uh, six of our main stage TEDx at Columbia events so far. Um, and we've held a couple salon style events. Um, we did one, not an official TEDx salon, but uh, sort of a small event around the 
eclipse that um, kind of cast a shadow along a certain strip of the of the U.S. back in August or so. Um, we called that Corona, I think, was the name of that event, and we talked about um, what does it mean to eclipse something in a in a broader context beyond just kind of the solar eclipse, um, and, and and sort of those ideas. Then we participated in a TEDx Youth Weekend event um, last year, and we're hoping to do our first TEDx adventure pretty soon as well. I mean, we, we've done some adventures. We can talk about that. So, 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 so you said six. So basically, you've been doing this for the last uh, five or six years, right? That's, mm-hmm. So, so that's you know, it's like I'd say possibly when you look back at your life when you're an old man, <laughs> um, this will be like one of the defining experiences of your of your teen years, right? Yeah, and, and definitely of my life because it's it's given me so many opportunities and and more importantly connections. Um, not really in terms of like job opportunities as much, but just like people who really are passionate about ideas and open mindedness and critical thinking and um, you know education. Like the community that I was able to meet at TED Fest this past year was probably the strongest bond that I'd ever formed with with a group of people in one place because everyone there shared some characteristic with me and and whether it was thinking about um, some of the issues that we present at TED at, at TEDx events or how we do them or how we you know work with teams and people or partners or venues or, or any any number of those sort of issues I think the the insight and friendships that I've gotten through TEDx have just been amazing. Yes, I certainly. I just sort of skip. I'll, I'll skip on to the TED Fest because there's something I'd, I'd be happy to discuss with you and share about that right right away. The TED Fest um, was something that TED put on, where TEDx organizers from all over the world, and you know, there are, I think there are six or seven TEDxes going on a day somewhere on planet Earth. So, 500 sounds like a lot, but it's a fraction of the total number of TEDxes um, that had had the opportunity to go to. TEDx licensees had the opportunity to go to New York in, uh, I think it was the last week of April 2017, and and for three or four days we watched live stream stream content from the TED conference in Vancouver, uh, and then had different kind of workshops and events going on, and and social engagements, and um, and, and, uh, there's a lesson to learn for people who are not connected or interested in TEDx, that whatever it is you do and you care about, if you can get that, get together with the other people in the world who do what you do and care about what you care about, particularly if they're from different cultures and, and different countries and different cities, it's an extraordinarily interesting and hopefully rewarding experience because you know you get someone with whom you have this very powerful bond who who isn't like you in terms of you know the color of their skin, or their, the, you know their age, or their or their, their their cultural identity. But they do have this amazing thing in common. You know, it could be your hobby as wargaming, or building robots, or 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 you know cleaning industrial industrial sites. But if you can get together with your community, the the, the internet means the world is now focused around communities of ideas rather than communities of geography as much as it used to be and that so the TED Fest was an amazing experience and in fact I found it quite frustrating because there simply wasn't time to get to know all the people who were there and I pitched TED just a few weeks ago the idea of doing a pre-event event in 
New York, which Ted have accepted. So for a day and a half before the Ted Fest, hopefully, if we can find a venue, we're going to have find somewhere like a sports hall or a or a community center or a co-working space, and um, just have a sort of a more laid-back, unconference type environment where people who are attending the Ted Fest can just sort of like interact with each other and I've got, I've got a few ideas about how that should work but but I as it was in, indeed at the TED Fest we met I, and I realized but I think it was a very short conversation like literally a two minute um, so it was but that set the platform for you to drop by when you were in Poland yeah yeah it was it was awesome I also think that um, I think that there wasn't enough time there to um, one interact with people one-on-one as you said but also uh, to have like structured workshops where we could maybe break out into different spaces and say, hey, let's talk about, you know, sponsors and partners here. Let's talk about venue and logistics here. Let's talk about team management here. Um, I wish that we'd been able to do that because just like the TEDx hub, which is our sort of way to share information among organizers and team members, just as that platform is a great way online for us to share information, I think it would have been even better to have some sort of in-person way to do this where you could instantly ask questions, get feedback, share ideas. Um, well, you, you maybe you should consider doing a sort of a TEDx Youth um, uh, Organizers regional workshop because we, we did one and there have been a couple in Poland. One was organized by the, um, by the, sort of the first TEDx Krakow team of which I was part about seven or eight years ago, and then, um, and then there's a long gap, and then I, I think TEDx Warsaw did a, sorry, TEDx Poznan in the west of Poland did a did a Polish organizers uh, work, workshop weekend, and TEDx Warsaw did a, a an international one, and, and then uh, we had the idea at TEDx Kazimierz of doing doing our one, and I, I talked to Will because I've got a few contacts in in. Um, in TED headquarters, I was talking to Will about it at the TED Fest, and he said, "Yes, yes, you know that's that's great. Maybe I can come and join you." And and that was a, sort of a really big thing because the the head of licensing from TED is someone who all TEDx organizers are very interested to get to know and talk to. And so we and so we we actually have a, like a blueprint for the way we the way we organized it. And um, but what was quite entertaining, I mean, it was. Uh, it worked fine in in the end was that we were very keen to showcase some of our, our organizational innovations and one of the things we did was or we have been doing for the last few years is monthly meetups without a license because we found the process of getting licenses was too tank and would took too long um, and so we we didn't apply for licenses for our monthly meetups and they'd always if it was a meetup there'd be integration and community building that would show a few pre-recorded TED Talks, have a discussion, community announcements, uh, we'd have a, uh, sometimes we'd have a, an open mic thing where if there was a performer like a magician or a stand-up comedian or a, or a, a musician, they could play at the end. And this was working really fine and we, we, we wanted to showcase, showcase this to all our, to all our, um, our guests from different countries that come to the regional workshop, because here in Europe it's much smaller than the United States in terms of geographical distance so someone could travel you know from a different country and they'd only be two or three hours away from 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 Krakow and and Will just said when we were discussing the workshop this should be licensed and so now all our all our monthly meetups from now are going to have salon licenses and it takes but a salon license it turns out get issued in in batches of 10 so once you've got a salon license that invite entitles you to do 10 10 events which yeah, I, I hope for our listeners this isn't um, 
uh, too detailed because maybe not everyone's interested in the minutiae of TED licensing, but um, <laughs> but we um, we've got a ready-made blueprint for how to organise a an organise a weekend, and I think that the fest is is different from uh, a, a workshop, but there's value there's value in both and uh, you know, yeah I'd love to I'd love to take a look at that well, for sure I'd be happy happy to share um, but what I also think is really interesting and we'll move on to now and then we might talk about a few other things like design thinking is if you describe the way you basically repeat what you said when you came into my house about the way you organize your organize your team because I want to talk a bit about organization and the, the principles of running voluntary teams uh, just describe how how your team meetings look and what you expect from your from the participants in your team meeting and what sort of people are in the room sure yeah so it starts off um with i guess the moment when someone would hear about our team um or i guess the ability to join our team so when i first started the event i was in high school and i was determined and adamant that anyone who was on my team should be in high school um and since then our team has remained to be only high school students, plus me as sort of the mentor and curator, even our organizer is a high school student every year. And so um, as a result, uh, our interview process looks kind of different from most events. Um, our uh, sort of recruitment process looks different from most events. And our workflow looks different from most events, because as you can imagine, there are some challenges that are posed just by the you know, fact that students are in school in the U.S. at least from around eight, seven sometimes to three or four um, in the afternoon. So, uh, on in in our team, for for our team, um, we use the terms hiring uh, when we actually bring people onto the team because we want them to understand that this is a true commitment. You are being hired as if this were a job. We expect you to fulfill a certain set of privileges or a certain set of responsibilities. Um, we have the team members sign a pledge uh, that that sort of has them examine their own time management skills and ask them to list how many hours they're willing to contribute each week. We ask them to stick to that. Um, then at the beginning of our organizing season, I host a sort of one-on-one -on -one with each of our team members to get them acquainted with the team, to ask them if they have any questions about um, kind of how to prioritize their their uh, work on the team, who should they be communicating with, how do they delegate tasks to other people if their team leads, um, and, and what are some basic strategies for time management? Because for some reason, we still don't teach time management or uh, kind of how to be productive in school as a required course, at least in the U.S. K-12 public education system. So that's something that I'm pretty um, uh, persistent about, about kind of ingraining into our team members, whether it's through one-on-ones that we have with our team members or whether it's through, through sharing with them books or resources or videos that they could use. Um, our, our team is also remote, so it comes from all over South Carolina. Um, and this is because we realized um, a couple years ago, we had interest from schools and students who wanted to attend our conference who weren't from Columbia, but who were from the surrounding area. Um, and, and South Carolina isn't the biggest state. It's a, it's a pretty small state, actually. So we figured, well, why not just expand the, the at attendee base of our conference to include students from all over South Carolina? Because at the time, I think there weren't any other major TEDx youth events happening across South Carolina. So we said, all right, let's do that. We expanded our, our schools program, which I can talk about later. Um, and then we uh, we realized, well, 
hold on, we have this diversity of attendees from across the state, but why don't we have that same diversity in our team? Um, and we we said, well, you know, it might be hard to, to get a group of 20, 15 high school students um, to get on, on Skype calls at the same time every week and meet and talk about, you know, what's going on and how are we going to assign tasks and how are we going to communicate and blah, blah, blah. But we realized those are just sort of excuses. And we said, no, if, if we truly want to have the true diversity that, that we're looking for, let's expand our team. And so we expanded this team to include students from all over South Carolina. And we had to sort of be creative with um, how we run meetings and how we assign tasks. So everything on our team is done now online. Um, the communication is done over primarily GroupMe, which is sort of a group messaging service. We don't use Slack or anything too advanced because all of our team members have a GroupMe and all of our team members have a cell phone, um, and that works pretty well with both. Um, and we use a variety of other services as well, like Google Apps for nonprofits, which is free, Trello, which is free for nonprofits as well. So those sort of services help keep us up and running. Um, so those are sort of the technical sides of being part of our team. Um, and then when each member comes onto the team, we introduce them to our team values. Uh, we tell them about uh, what does it mean to be a member of not only the TEDx Youth at Columbia team, but the TEDx and TED communities more globally. Like we, we talk about on our large team meetings of, of, of 20 people or so, um, why do we do what we do? Why is TED and spreading ideas and specifically spreading ideas to high school students in South Carolina important? Why did those things matter? Um, and to sort of in, ingrain that into our, our, our minds and to keep this um, value of ideas worth spreading at the top of mind at all times, uh, we require that each team member watch one TED Talk per day. It can be a short, you know, three to five minute TED Talk. It can be a long 18 minute TED Talk, but it's just one TED Talk per day. Um, and then during each of our meetings, um, I have a meeting that happens twice a week with our team leads that lasts about half an hour. And then uh, I have a meeting with each of our uh, with our, our organizer and co-organizer that happens also twice a week for about half an hour. And then those leads have meetings with each of their teams uh, for anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes each week. Um, in each of those meetings, we ask that everyone go around and share what TED Talks they watched that week. It can be you know their short talk or their long talk, whatever it is. But um, we ask that, that they go around and, and, and not only share the TED Talk, but see what connections they can find between other TED Talks that other team members watch. And maybe some weeks there won't be any connections, but it's always interesting to see, for instance, how can you relate climate change to youth activism or how can you relate music to math? Um, so those sorts of ideas are things that we try to keep at top of mind uh, during our whole organizing process. Okay, and, and you know, there's a number of interesting things about that. One is... Um, yeah, the head of uh, TEDx Wrocław, which is a city in the west of Poland. Um, someone from their team told me that you know when people are onboarded there, he's very clear that you know having a TEDx, being part of the team is a job. It may not be paid, but it's a job, which is a strong echo. Um, but the but you have these quite um, high requirements, which is very interesting. And how do you, if you have a rule like you have to walk, you have to watch one TED talk a day? How do you police that and enforce that? And because it's, it, there's not—I I, I was going to say there's nothing, nothing worse, but obviously that's a huge exaggeration. It's not a good idea to have rules and conditions if they're not being enforced. So how, how do you monitor and enforce it if someone hasn't been watching their TED talks? How, how would you find out? This is a thing that I've been thinking about, sort of contemplating recently, and. 
more generally uh, the question of how do we keep our team members motivated and interested in TEDx and TED and, and ideas more generally. So, so for us, we can sort of tell not not really when you know the the team members aren't watching their TED talks, but more generally when they're not really being as productive as they could be or when they're lagging in communication or time management or those sort of areas. And we do a few things to sort of keep track of that. So every two weeks we send out what we call a heartbeat survey. Um, and that's just sort of to keep a pulse on everyone's heartbeat within the team to find out, are they doing well? Are they struggling anywhere? Um, how is communication going between them and their team lead, them and their other members uh, on their uh, smaller teams, them and the organizers? Um, are their team leads struggling in any way with empathy or communication or delegation or project management? Um, because those are skills, again, that that a lot of students don't have at that age. And, and of course, things that we want to develop as, as part of being on the team. So it's really important for us to know when that's not working. Um, we also can I just stop you there and say what what's yeah. a heart what's a heartbeat survey and how long does it take to complete? Yeah, so a heartbeat survey for us it it just means we call it a heartbeat survey because it just kind of measures everyone's pulse everyone's pulse everyone's heartbeat uh, as as far as working on the team goes. It's probably twenty or so questions total, and fifteen of the questions are just very simple. Rate this on a scale of one to five, just close ended, like click this, thumbs up you know, for, for, you know, maybe give it a, a, a one to five star rating or so. Um, and then five of the questions or so are open-ended where you can elaborate on that answer a bit more. And so for instance, if someone answers, uh, they weren't able to complete all their assignments this week, we'll ask them a follow-up and we'll say, why was that? Was it something that we can do better on the team? Was it something that you could do better? How could you improve yourself? Uh, how could we improve our workflow to make this better? Okay. Um, I, I made a note earlier when you were uh, chatting. Uh, if there are any documents that you're ready to share with us, like examples of, uh, I, I think these tools and processes are really, really interesting. And, you know, this could be useful for someone who's not running a TEDx at all, but doing something completely different. Yeah. Like, the, the, I think that uh, is, is fascinating for me anyway, and it should be yeah. interesting to us. Yeah, I'd love to share that. Uh, okay, so because we always have a show notes section and, you know, I'll have a link to yeah. your personal website, but these are some extra things which, um, you know, obviously you can potentially anonymize, but be, you know, the, the more any organization can automate and um, on the one, because there's a tremendous trade-off that you can have too many forms to fill in and too many processes which sort of drag people down and, you know, the, the, the idea that processes can set you free and identify, you know, it might seem like it's a pain to fill in your bi-weekly survey, but if the, 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 the benefit of that is you, if someone's demotivated and lost the plot, they get picked up. And is the you know, so is there, um, is there a sort of like a strong self-policing thing that if someone's, it becomes visible without you doing any work if someone's just like not on board with this? Because it's, it's quite, it's like being a manager of a company. There are a lot of processes that someone has to keep an eye on in that case because if, you know, other like red flags and dashboards and things that start blinking if, if, if something's going, because for example, there might be someone who's in a team in the PR team, public relations team, 
and but their team leaders like underperforming or having a crisis or an exam or has a relationship issue or whatever the family issue it could be a good reason or a bad reason but they could be out of action for a while and then how would you find out that things how quickly would you find out that things have gone gone wrong and um, how do you find the time to sort of firefight if you because presumably things don't always work completely smoothly yeah so um Another thing we ask of our team members is that they respond to emails, text messages within 24 hours. Um, and so it's not necessarily that they have to complete their assignments within 24 hours, but it's that they have to acknowledge that they received that message or that they know that they have to do that assignment. And if they can't complete it by the deadline, then they have to at least let someone know. Um, so w when we start to see patterns of, of people not being able to respond to those um, or sort of more alarmingly not filling out heartbeat surveys or, or not, you know, just just being totally missing in action for a couple of days or I mean a couple of days isn't that that big of a deal but um, a week or so is usually a red flag for us um, I'll I'll usually contact them and or I'll either either I or the organizer will contact them um, and ask to set up a one-on-one -on -one with them to see how things are going um, usually it's it's one of two things it's it's one of sort of two broad categories at least we've noticed um, and the first is is sort of a lack of m motivation or uh, miscommunication, maybe um, that what they thought they were getting into when they were when they were joining our team was not what what actually ended up happening. Um, and, and in that case, we tell them it is totally fine if you want to leave if you don't want to spend your time here because um, it's it's bad for. Our team, obviously, because we're not making the most out of out of what you could be helping us with, and, and it's bad for you, of course, because you're not spending your time where it should be spent, which is on things that you're passionate about. So we definitely don't want to waste anyone's time, and that's and that's a big sort of priority for us is 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 minimizing time spent by everyone. Um, and and actually, this year, one of our goals uh, that we've been hitting consistently now is starting meetings on time. So if you're not at an at an eight o'clock meeting at eight o'clock on the dot, we're starting without you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're the organizer or the curator or the licensee, we're starting. Um, and that's been a huge help. Um, and now we actually put meetings back to back in the same meeting room on Google Hangouts. So if your meeting runs over, you have no choice but to leave because another meeting is starting at that time. Um, anyway, so the first category of, of those sort of uh, failures, I guess, is, is is miscommunication or lack of motivation, and the second one um, is is probably prioritization or time management. And so, in that case, we'll try to step in and sort of suggest time management resources or 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 see if there's anything that, that we can do in terms of workflow to help out. That's really interesting, and you know, and this time management is it's interesting. We I recently had a, a speaker at a, a different event, not a TEDx event. I organised at Krakow Enterprise Mondays, Piotr Nabielets, who who's written a book in English, which I can put in the show notes. He, in fact, he was on the podcast as well. Um, about he, he's a productivity trainer, and you know his uh, and I was the uh, time management books had a really big impact on me about twenty years ago when I first went into business because I became very overloaded and as in America now back in the UK despite having what's regarded as a very good education we didn't have a single hour on time management in my whole school and university there was just nothing um, there was there was one talk on learning skills which had an overlap but yeah, I found it extraordinary that almost every business person 
I've ever come across, or someone who wants to do things in their life talks about the importance of personal motivation, time management, and organizational skills, and I hadn't been taught any of these things at all in Cambridge University, which is one of the best universities in, in the United Kingdom, uh, the, the high school I was at, which has a reputation for being a good one, not a minute on stuff that really mattered. And Where did you come across um, time management, and are there any particular time management books or, or resources? So, because obviously... You mentioned right at the start of this podcast that time management was very important. And how did how did you become aware of that early in your life? <laughs> when I was younger, um, I had a fascination with technology. So I would go on my <coughs> I would go on my parents' computer before school, um, and then sort of try to conceal the fact that I was browsing the web by like quickly minimizing the window. And of course, like they found out eventually, but, um, one of the things that I got into was websites like, like Lifehacker, uh, which share different productivity tools and resources. And I don't really go to that website as much anymore, but, um, the things that I've tried over the years, uh, include the getting things done method, which, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, I, I now use sort of a, a mix of tools. So uh, I use the the service Asana, which is kind of a uh, online to do list um, to manage most of my to dos for personal um, projects and school related assignments. Um, and then I use the Reminders app on my phone and Mac, which sync really well with each other. Um, and that's just for for quick things that need to get done right away. Um, so in in my Reminders app, I have a few lists that I. I'm not sure where I read this. I'll, I'll see if I can find the link later. But um, it's 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 made up of five lists. One is the inbox, which is sort of a, a derivative of the getting things done method, I believe. Um, and I, I call it everything. So whenever I think of something, I just stick it into that inbox called everything. Um, and then I'll process it later on that day. Um, and, and then I have three other lists, small, medium, and big actions. Small actions take two minutes or less. Medium actions take anywhere from two to 30 minutes. And big actions take more than 30 minutes to complete. Um, and then I'll sort of throw everything into those lists. Um, and I have a, a time that I allocate myself each day, um, anywhere from an hour to two hours to sort of go through those tasks and see what needs to be done and when. And of course, I try to add deadlines and, and, and priorities and things like that. But, um, you know, I'm not always perfect with that. Um, so that's that's the main strategy that I'm using right now. Um, and I would say that my biggest challenge right now is email, uh, figuring out how to how to tackle that. Um, because I'm using the, the Spark app right now on both Mac and iPhone. Um, and it's a, it's a free app. It's, it's probably like one of the best that I've used, um, so far. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm really liking the snooze feature in the app, which lets you snooze emails until a later time and, and also lets you send emails later, which, um, is, is a great advantage for those who are up at, you know, three or four in the morning emailing or those who are emailing, you know, at, at strange time zones, for instance. Um, uh, or I guess in different time zones than the recipient. I appreciate that you're you're coughing, and I don't want to take up too much time. If 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 as you're putting together a batch of show notes, which I, I hope will be a medium task, I want you to spend between two and thirty rather than more than thirty. <laughs> yeah. um, if you can take a few screenshots, I'll probably put together uh, I'll put together a blog post about this because I think it, it you know some of this stuff is easy to describe but easier to understand when you can see it um, because it, 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 again. For for anyone anyone listening, 
getting a grip of your time. The, the book that kicked things off for me was a great book by a guy who I don't know if he's still alive called Hiram Smith. I read it 25 years ago called The, the Ten Principles of Life and Time Management. And he makes a point which I found incredibly powerful that people measure their lives in terms of time. You know, someone lived for 70 years. So if you get a grip of your time, you get a grip of your life. And that was just like an incredibly powerful uh, concept which I just haven't come across and it's obvious you know what, what, why are you so obsessed by time management well I, I'm a human being I'm alive so therefore my time really, yeah. my time really matters and it sort of it was remarkable to me that despite all the all the education I'd had that hadn't I hadn't come across that okay I, I think what I'd like to do is spend um, the last few minutes of, of this um, talking about non non-ted and organization related stuff and you mentioned you mentioned design thinking and that so that's one thing the other thing is to like perhaps think about you know the 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 what next question that obviously you've got a you've put together a very un, unusual in my view sort of organization to manage um manage a distributed network of uh, teenagers to do quite a tricky a tricky project and you know what what you think this sort of this skill set might lead you towards doing because I, I i i would sense and my feedback would be you've deserved, developed a sort of uh, not exactly a hu human capital but in a sense human capital uh, an organizational capacity that would be good to deploy on something important so first first design thinking and then we might close with you know how you might use these skills you've you've got in in the future and yeah you know, well we don't have to make this our final conversation it doesn't have to be a podcast but i'm curious to know what might come next in these circumstances but what, can you explain what you mean by design thinking yeah yeah and i've i've been reading the sort of seminal work on this uh by um the ceo of ideo tim brown um called change by design and i'm still sort of getting through the book right now so i'm not i'm, I'm by no means an expert on this but um design thinking is using the approach that designers use to solve a problem um, and broadening the scope of that, not just uh, to include design, but to include any problem. So if we take a look at the way that we legislate, at least in, in the US, and this is something that Tim Brown talked about recently, I believe, um, uh, kind of reforming the process in a design thinking approach would be rather than trying to create a one-size-fits-all bill um, that is debated on back and forth until we agree on some sort of solution that haphazardly works or or that you know only works for some um, and and passing that a design thinking approach might look like uh, creating a working version of this bill first signing that into law and then as we see what's going well what's going poorly about about uh, you know, uh, what's what's working and what's not working in society as a result of this bill having been passed, we can then go back and iterate um, and and kind of fix those those problems. And as we iterate more and more, the idea is that we'll come to this perfect ideal solution. Um, so design thinking for me means a couple things. And, and I'm still trying to sort of contemplate all of this and 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 nail down more concretely uh, what this means, but I think that being a, a designer or a design thinker means being optimistic, um, which means thinking about problems in a way in, in a way such that you believe that there's a solution to any problem and you just have to find it. It's not that 
there's only one solution that's going to work. It's that maybe there's another way to look at the solution, or maybe there's a way to reframe an existing solution in order to create a new solution that will fix the problem. So optimistic is one of the traits that I think design thinking encompasses, um, and iteration is definitely the other one for me. Um, and it's it's this idea that we can take something from point A and, and bring it to point B, not through you know just one single one-size-fits-all uh, approach, but through a series of perspectives and inputs and, and feedback. Um, and I guess another another sort of characteristic of design thinking for me is collaboration. Um, so taking into account who are your users, who are your stakeholders, and maybe in the case of a, of a conference, the users might be the attendees, maybe in the case of a TEDx, the users might be the team. Um, and thinking about that entire process and being extremely intentional about it and iterative and optimistic, um, I think uh, when you include collaboration in that mix, um, you can really achieve great things through design thinking. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. No, that, that, that's, that's really great. And I just sort of check in a couple of observations. It's great you're thinking about, about, about politics and legislation because, for me, uh, the, the methodology is, is, I think you described it ex extremely well um, because it's, a, it's a really, and one of my personal approaches is I, I collect and like problems, even if I hate problems. It's like if I notice there's something wrong, any time there's something wrong, that's an opportunity because the, there must be a best way, of, even if there's no solution to you know, the problem of cancer, like that no one's found one yet. There's definitely better ways of addressing that problem, particularly, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a doctor, but you know, early detection is clearly very important. So if there's a cancer problem, well, this, you know, how are we going to make people aware of you know, whatever it is, uh, testicular self-inspection self or whatever it is that you have to or what are the symptoms of prostate? And you know, I'm a I'm a middle-aged man, so if I notice someone going to the toilet more often than would seem normal, which apparently is a red flag for prostate problems, and I say, hey, have you thought of having a checkup? Because because that's a kind of instant little fix. But the question of empowerment and not just empowerment, but treading on other people's toes, you have to have a culture that you know, if you're a police, you're a police officer, a man or woman dealing with crime, and formally there isn't a direct interaction with. There might be interactions with schools, um, there might be interactions with, uh, you know, prisons, but there isn't an interaction with nightclubs or, or certain types of venues where, you know, it might be the toilets in a sports, sports stadium uh, where the drug dealers are, but you're not, you're not empowered in your capacity to go and talk to them. You have to have a culture where people are absolutely willing to talk to people who don't have formal rights to interfere. And a lot of, uh, certainly in in my experience, there are some people who are very open to someone who shouldn't be poking their nose into my business doing that, but there are other people who, who absolutely hate it and, you know, the museum director just doesn't want to know that there's a problem a problem with their, their staff Christmas party means that people showed up to the museum not realizing the staff Christmas party is going on, which means that people have traveled a long way to go to the museum, can't actually go and see the exhibits and, you know, it'd be great if someone pointed out that they're failing in their fundamental mission because they're prioritizing, and you know, if they said members of the public are welcome to join the staff party, that would be an opportunity rather than, <laughs> rather than a, a problem or whatever. So, so you have to have that culture of being open, right, and not being, not being defensive about people outside the, <coughs> the formal competence. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad. Glad you agree. Um, and but then, <laughs> in, in in terms of. Um, um, just a couple more, a couple more thoughts. One is that your 
your experience in designing a distributed team to address uh, address the challenges of running a TEDx might be something that could be applied to design thinking if you could assemble people around a particular issue. I don't I, know. I, I, have, have you tried that? Or I, I guess you're a busy person. You've got your, your undergraduate degree to, to, to finish and you've got your TEDx responsibilities. So I would assume you don't have a huge spare capacity to take on additional challenges or do you somehow manage? Well, I wouldn't say I, I manage well, but, you know, things work out sometimes. I would say the sort of next step for me in terms of design thinking is looking at how can we bring that into education and specifically K through 12 education. Um, one of the things that I've been researching more and more over the past few years is dialogue and the importance of dialogue in education. Because when I was in high school and, and even in, in my first year or so of college, I noticed there, I, I, I and my friends, we didn't have a a set of skills through which we could talk about controversial, important issues in a constructive and productive way. Um, and I, I noticed that my friends and I would attack each other based on on our beliefs rather than the quality of our ideas. Um, so dialogue for me is a solution to this problem. And it's, and it's creating a space where people can not only talk about these these issues in a productive way, but in such a way that builds understanding between people and that first recognizes people's shared humanity and then allows them to talk about these shared issues rather than saying, well, you know, I have stance A, you have stance B, you're wrong because blah, 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 and stance B says, well, no, you're wrong because blah, blah, blah. Because those those sort of conversations don't lead to change, they just lead to um, divisiveness. And and that's, of course, the last thing we, we wanna see in, in this day and age. So. Uh, I think my next step uh, in terms of design thinking is is looking at how can we bring everyone in, uh, around the table, educators, students, teachers, um, you know, administrators, parents, uh, innovative ways of education like TED Talks in the classroom and things like that um, to bring dialogue into K through 12 education. Okay, that's very interesting. And, you know, it's, just, it's a bit out of the box, but I was recently listening to a podcast about the way that Iceland as a country was tackling difficult issues to do with alcoholism, drug abuse, and I think uh, STD, sexually transmitted diseases among uh, Icelandic youth. And Iceland's a tiny country. It's like 300,000 people as an entire population. So it's a very different type of place where, you know, I live in a city where the population is treble that of the entire country. And what they were doing was having groups of parents getting together and forming sort of community committees where they'd be out on the streets looking for looking for problems, which sounds rather vigilante-like and quite alarming, but by the description it sounded very funny that the, 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 they said that the parents got to know each other uh, in a way that is unusual certainly in some cities that is this is a, a very strong correlation between the degree to which people uh, parents knew the parents of their friends had a huge impact in figuring out social problems that you know someone would notice that someone wasn't coming out of their bedroom or whatever it was and so there would be much better sort of detection and awareness of problems but you know you might you might find there be a, uh, some kind of discussion based around you know, good practice from other parts of the world, or even interesting practice, because it might be that everyone sits in the room and says, we don't want to be like Iceland, because that sounds really creepy, but it, but if we're not going to be like Iceland, how are we going to deal with it? But that's, that sounds very interesting. So, um, and it also sounds to me like your, your TED team meetings were actually, or your TEDx 
team meetings were actually instrumental. That the meeting is not just about organizing your TEDx. It's actually an educational, every single meeting is an educational opportunity, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and we actually spend about 20 minutes of our 30 to 45 minutes each meeting on on that educational portion. So for us, it's incredibly important that we develop our team through education, not just, you know, have them send emails and, and make flyers and, and things like that. Yeah, great. Okay, well, I mean, we're, we're coming towards the end now, and I, I, was, I was thinking about the sort of the, the what next. Obviously, you're, you're studying architecture and a few, a few other things, but do you, do you have, like, a concept of what you're going to do or, or particular priorities you want to do after you went because when you when you graduate you'll have you'll have more time and you know given your your strong interest in time management you'll be able to prioritize and focus and think well the next big thing I want to do is X so why do you, do you do you yet have a feel for what that's going to be or are you still you're still on the lookout for, for challenges and opportunities? Um, I I would say this is this is as a result of having. <coughs> Um, done TEDx for so long, but my my mind has slowly opened open more to more possibilities. And now I'm I'm sort of taking the approach that anything is possible in terms of my future. Um, I I don't want to set a path for myself right now. Um, of course, I do have an idea in mind, and that current idea involves some combination of wrapping up my work with TEDx Youth at Columbia um, in the next few years or so. Um, then maybe going on to a graduate degree, um, working in the intersections of education, maybe new technology, media, design, um, international issues, um, and then hopefully working for an organization like the United Nations or some other international NGO to help address issues pertaining to education internationally. Um, and maybe along the way, I'll I'll um, help affect education systems locally as well, um, whether that's in South Carolina or in the U.S. or maybe even in, in, in Europe. But um, that's the general idea right now. But, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I wanted to be a designer. A couple of years before that, I wanted to be a computer programmer. So everything's everything's really open for me. Um, and I, I take peace in that. So. Okay, great. Like, this is one of our speakers. We didn't really talk about the, the details of he, what I. The, the, and we 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 could have an eight-hour conversation. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen yeah. in this podcast. Although another time, I'd be delighted to come back and talk for longer about this. But one of our speakers at TEDx Kashmir, uh, Leslie Keast, is involved in the School in the Cloud, which the TED Prize winner Sugata Mitra talked about. I, I'm, I'm, Pretty sure you'll be aware of his TED talks, given your interests about you know the hole in the wall experiment and uh, uh, the Skype grannies teaching teaching people in other parts of the world over the internet. Presumably, you're familiar with that. No, no, I'm not actually. I'd love if you could share those with me. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll send you the links. I'll put the link in the show notes. As yeah. well. So Scott Amitra won the TED Prize, and his, his, the talk was a "Let's Build a School in the Cloud." It was been 2012, I think. And um, yeah. one of our speakers, Leslie, was an English, still is an English language teacher, or a teacher of English teachers in Madrid, in Spain, and she came and talked about how every every Sunday morning she attends the school that she teaches over Skype kids in. Uh, self-organized learning environments in India and I think that you know there's a possibility that um, I, I don't know whether they'll be interested but they, they might be um, you could talk about somehow 
um, not just educating in the classic way. Let's let's do maths or let's do history, but let let's let's teach organisational design for for school projects because what you're doing is clearly uh, replicable. Although uh, although you'd need to spend some time sort of developing a manual uh, or an instruction you know, instructions of how to organise things. But I think I think you know you may or may not be aware, but I think what you're doing is pretty pretty unusual and interesting as an organizational organizational architecture and you know it's one thing to have access to Trello and Asana and time management tools it's a completely different thing to use those tools to run an organization on quite a large scale effectively so that's something to consider but we could talk about that another time okay and I, I finally I, I, it's just occurred to me that is there anything about your parenting like if someone listening to this has a has a child of eight or ten who's like before the stage you got involved in all of this. Um, is there anything you'd say to people who would like their kids to have an interesting teenage life about the, the key things for a parent to note um, in terms of upbringing or, or values that means that it's more likely their their kids will have an interesting, interesting, productive teenage years? Because I think a lot of people look back at their teens and think, I want my teens to be better than... <laughs> Sorry, I want my kids' teens to be better than my teens, um, because and you know you can't you can't recreate the past, but you can design the present to make the future better for other people than they were for yourself. Yeah, wow, that's such an interesting question. I've never been asked that before, and what I think has taken me to this point um, is just being exposed to a lot of things and. I don't know if the fact that I was forced to do a lot of things that initially I didn't like helped or not. Maybe it did, but... Can you give examples of things you were forced to do you didn't like? That's very interesting because this is a lack of... course. counterintuitive. You, you know, I was going to say, I was given a lot of freedom to my mind. So this isn't instead of, you were forced to do things you didn't like. What were you forced to do? Of course. So my mom's a classical guitarist. Um, she, she's she been a classical guitarist her whole life. She's a teacher and performer. Um, so when we got a, a, a little electronic keyboard in the house and it kind of started dabbling, uh, you know, in music a little bit, um, she said, oh, Kevin, you might have a, a, a talent or a passion for music. Um, and she signed me up for piano lessons at the age of five. Um, and she came from a very strict Ukrainian household and, well, I guess Ukrainian Jewish. That, that kind of makes it even more so. Um, and so she signed me up for lessons at the age of five. Um, we continued them through probably age 12, 13, maybe 14. Um, and I remember at the peak, of my uh, musical uh, musical sort of competition career, if we can put that in air quotes, um, was me practicing for two to three hours a day sometimes um, against my will, <laughs> even though my mom said, no, this is what you need to be doing. This is what will be right for you. And through, through that sort of process, I learned um, very important skills like persistence and, you know, working hard to, to get the payoff, whether that was a competition win or a good concert or, you know, being able to audition for something. Um, so things like that. Math team, I, I participated in that all throughout middle school, which is about ages uh, 12 or 13 to 15, and then throughout high school as well, ages 15 to like 18. Um, and I really didn't like math, but I did it because I thought it was going to be a computer programmer, and my dad really wanted me to do it, and he sort of kept encouraging me, and I felt that I really needed to do it because he, he wanted me to. And then I realized, 
at the end of high school, I shouldn't have been doing that. Um, so like, I think really knowing like what I wasn't good at was so important for me to figure out what I was good at, but I would have never figured out those things that I was really bad at if I hadn't been doing them for so long. Um, so I, it, it might seem counterintuitive, but, um, I would say, you know, encouraging your child to stick with something, um, to see whether they're good or bad at it, um, is, is a good thing either way. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing, just the sort of drive in and, and momentum that my parents instilled in me through that. Really interesting. I mean, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever specifically asked that question before. And I've certainly never got that answer. And it's, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's a whole separate topic. Well, 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 um, Kevin, I really appreciate your time. Just before we close, is there any like final final message you'd like to send out to a global audience? Um, in total, that we've just had around 30,000 people listen to different podcasts and individual podcasts could reach, depending on how good our PR machine is, could reach as, as few as 50 or as many as three or 4,000 people. If you've got like one thing you'd like to say to the Project Kashmir's audience before we wrap, then this is your moment. I really like the quote at the end of uh, the podcast called Design Matters by Debbie Millman that goes, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. Um, and I think that's something that, that we should keep in mind. I could talk about making a difference or make a difference or both. And, um, well, that, that certainly sounds like a, an excellent, um, excellent way to... Uh, to finish so uh, we'll have a little bit of work after this podcast exchanging emails to put together a decent set of show notes um, where on in December it's the 20th I think the 20th or 21st of December is it 21st of December 2017 so if, if you're listening to this in 100 or 200 years time and America no longer exists and Europe no longer exists and we're in a global a global siblinghood of, of, of men women and transgenders with everything being very different or we're in we're in a sort of futuristic nightmarish um, future where things haven't worked out um i hope uh, I, I i i hope that i hope this has been interesting it's certainly been a pleasure to talk to you and, and if you can only get things sorted out so you could be in new york in april 2018 it would be great to have a longer conversation i don't know if there's any chance of that but any game any any anyway once again thanks very much indeed for your time Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible.
because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your 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 creative juices will run, then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from, a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.